this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Bart Stevens from Blockchain Capital. This is arguably one of the more important episodes of Base Layer that I think I've recorded, especially for family offices and other institutional investors. Bart is just a wealth of information coming from a family office perspective. He and his family have been investing in the space now for over seven years. We talk about the early days. We talk about Bart's background, which is just tremendous, especially in early stage technology and investing. Um, and so we talked about the whole cornucopia of things that are happening within blockchains and digital assets and crypto and crypto networks. Uh, Blockchain Capital has made over 80 investments in the space, and we talked about how they are finding those ideas. We talked about the maturation of the industry. We talked about what he has seen for the last seven years, from the early days to what we've seen now in terms of a maturing capital market space with companies like DYDX and other companies out there that are providing shorting and margin and derivatives for the assets out there. We also talked about valuation, and we talked about how that relates to the equity markets out there. We've seen, obviously, some issues as relates last late last year with WeWork and Postmates postponing their IPO. We talked about how valuations are either insulated or not uh, in digital assets from the public markets, and it's an interesting take he had there. We also talked about some of their 2020 predictions that they came out with at Blockchain Capital, and they are fascinating. We might be seeing the early days of some sustainable M&A activity, and we talked about that. This, again, is probably one of the more important episodes for family offices and other institutional investors to take a listen to. It is just a wealth of information, and Bart is really, really smart to the space. He knows a lot. Seven years in digital assets and blockchains and digital uh, and digital assets is what we usually think of about one year equals 10 years, so 70 years of experience. So please remember, nothing on base layer is investment at rice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear an amazing conversation with Bart Stevens from Blockchain Capital. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. My goodness, I am really looking forward to this. I have Bart Stevens, the co-founder and managing partner at Blockchain Capital, here with me today. Bart, how are you? David, sorry, I was on mute. I uh, appreciate the invitation to be on your podcast today. Hopefully we don't have any more uh, technical difficulties, and I'm looking forward to getting into some uh, exciting topics around our industry. Awesome. And so as we were talking about this prior, um, you have such a unique background as a lot of the listeners, our family offices and other institutional investors, as well as everyone else in the digital asset ecosystem. Your perspective and your background is very unique and really interesting for folks to hear about. I don't think there's a lot of people within the digital asset blockchain ecosystem who don't know you and your firm because you guys have been at this for so much time. But for those that are less familiar, if you could just give a little bit of background about yourself, uh, some time, obviously, at Stevens Investment Management and Fidelity and some other places. And then what I really want to lock in and on is... At what specific time did you realize or did you find distributed and decentralized technologies or what we call blockchains? And what really led you to the development of blockchain capital? Sure. It's kind of a long story, and it involves a journey through virtual worlds. So 
Um, hopefully you can hang with me a little bit. But um, first and foremost, I'm a three-time founder. So, you know, when uh, young entrepreneurs are coming to our office here in San Francisco and they're telling us about a new idea for a protocol or a product or a service or a company, I know what it's like to be in that chair. And the truth is, it is very, very difficult to have a successful startup, to raise capital, to build a product or a service that customers want, and to scale that business successfully over time, to make money for all of your stakeholders, be that your the founders and the employees, hopefully the customers love it, and also the investors. Um, and so I started my career as a kind of uh, junior executive actually at E-Trade. So after I went to school on the East Coast, I did my academic work on information warfare. Actually, I, my thesis posited that in the future that non-state actors, not governments, would attack not our military bases, but our databases. And that research was done in the mid to late 90s. Um, and so it was science fiction at the time, and it's playing out on the front pages of the New York Times every day, 25 years later. But at E-Trade, um, I really was interested in kind of the intersection of technology and finance. And E-Trade in 1997, when I got there, was in many ways kind of like Coinbase is today. It was a rocket ship. It was bringing new products and services at a dramatically lower price point to a new audience. So, you know, Merrill Lynch was charging $350 for a stock trade at the time. And at E-Trade, we were charging $15. And what I learned there is better, faster, cheaper always wins. So started my career as a technology executive as a um, and kind of rose the ranks and got four or five battlefield promotions and ended up working for the CEO directly in a corporate development role. So we made a bunch of venture capital investments. We acquired about 10 companies, and that was an incredible experience for me. Um, I then left and founded my own company, which is a healthcare startup focused on cancer. And so um, there I learned what it was like to be a founder and to hire a CEO. And eventually I had to fire the CEO and be the CEO. And raise um, $65 million in venture capital from guys like Mike Milken or Paul Allen or Andy Grove. A um, bunch of venture capitalists were involved. So important learning experience there. Um, we sold that company to Pfizer, but notably we sold that company after the dot-com collapse. Um, and so what would have been an incredible exit for myself and my, for my investors was actually a bit of a humbling experience. We were able to salvage some value, but that taught me the importance of timing. Um, which is something that I think crypto investors um, miss uh, from time to time. You know, the timing in the investment process is really important. You, you, you have to be right. Often you have to be right in contrarian. You have to be right in contrarian and get the timing correct. And so that's why the investment business is just so challenging, whether you're a bond investor, a commodity investor, or a crypto investor. So after um, selling that company called Oncology.com, I went into business with my brother Brad for the first time. And this was in 2002. Brad was working at Fidelity. I had sold my dot-com based in New York. And what we noticed is that a lot of the internet companies that we knew or we had invested in um, through our family's office uh, had kind of round-tripped. And so in 2002, um, you might remember, and, and some of the older listeners to your podcast might remember, uh, in the wake of the dot-com collapse, the internet was radioactively out of favor. People were super depressed. Everyone I knew that went to fancy business schools like Wharton or Harvard or Stanford Business School were basically out of work. And the San Francisco real estate market had imploded where Brad and I were kind of born and raised. Brad is my brother and my business partner at Blockchain Capital, was my business partner at the hedge fund firm that we would start in 2002. And so we had a very contrarian thesis. We basically saw in 2002 that the good, the bad, and the ugly that had a dot-com attached to their name that were publicly traded stocks had gone down somewhere between 70 and 
And so we decided to zig when the other, the rest of the world was zagging. And we had this hypothesis, um, and I'm mixing uh, metaphors a little bit here, that there were some babies that were thrown out with the bathwater. And so we spent a lot of time going through annual reports and 13 uh, G and F filings, taking a look at were there high quality internet companies that had a real business that were profitable and growing, but were kind of lumped in Mm-hmm. with the pets.com or the globe.com or web van. These are failed business models that incinerated massive amounts of money. And, you know, it, it kind of looks obvious in retrospect now, but it certainly wasn't obvious then. But, uh, you know, we know now that the technology industry came just roaring back. So we started a fund and pioneered a strategy called nano cap investing. So you might ask, what is a nano cap? Um, and that's basically a sub micro cap equity. So we were basically pursuing a hedge fund strategy, but acting like venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were looking at companies that maybe had 25, 50 or $100 million in revenue. They just happened to be publicly traded. Their valuations were incredibly depressed because they were an out of favor sector known as the internet. And we started our hedge fund um, at Stevens Investment Management with the grand total of 1 million in AUM. I said, I told this story at a conference a couple months ago, uh, it was a hedge fund conference and people started laughing and, and it, it is a laughable number. Now, if you wanted to start a hedge fund, you need to have 1 billion. And you know, the nature of wall street has changed dramatically. Right. It's now machines trading against machines. It's dominated by passive managers over active managers. And, but anyway, in 2002 was the first time my brother, Brad and I went into business together. We started this hedge fund firm. We scaled it from a million to just under a billion. And it would be our hedge fund investing that would eventually lead us to crypto. And, and so we had two sectors um, that we focused on that generated the majority of the returns. One sector was kind of based on personalized medicine and genomics. And I'll just put that topic aside because it's not germane to our conversation today. But the other sector would eventually lead us to crypto. And that was Brad and I were lifelong video game players. So we would lie to our parents and say that we were doing our homework and we'd stay up all night playing these video games. And in our, in our hedge fund investing, we, were, we started this hedge fund when we were 27 and 29 years old, so rather young. And what we realized is that we were old enough to be hedge fund managers on Wall Street, but we were young enough to be lifelong gamers. So if you picture in your mind one of those Venn diagrams, those circles that overlap, mm-hmm. we were kind of the only guys that had a, that overlapping demographic, if you will, old enough to be kind of portfolio managers or hedge fund, young enough to be lifelong gamers. And what we realized is that our competitors, other hedge funds were basically run by guys that were between 10 and 25 years older than us. And they just didn't have a good feel for the video game industry. They weren't even playing these video games, but they were buying and selling and shorting video game stocks. And so long story short, we found a hack where we figured out that we could predict how video game stocks were going to perform by inhabiting these virtual worlds. So you might be familiar with games like Second Life or World of Warcraft. These are what we call massively multiplayer online games. And what we figured out is these games, when you put 10 or 20 million people in an online world, they start acting like they do in the real world. By that, I mean, they want status. They want to be rich. They want to be good looking. They want to have an attractive um, boyfriend or girlfriend. And so these virtual worlds develop virtual economies and the virtual economies developed digital assets and digital currencies. And so that was our jumping off point. 
Um, we started getting very involved in kind of the video game digital currency industry because it informed our hedge fund trading. And that um, would eventually lead us to Bitcoin or when Bitcoin popped up on our radar screen, you know, 99.99% of institutional investors were writing it off as a scam. You could make the argument that most of them are still doing that. Um, but for us, our mind was conditioned. We, all, we saw gamers in China and Korea and the U.S. paying real-world dollars for virtual currency that could only be used in the video game. So when Bitcoin came along to us, we had kind of an open mind. We decided to do a deep dive and do some research. Um, so that's kind of a long-winded story to a very simple question, which is how did you get into this industry? <laughs> but it was, it was the video game industry that got us into this sector. You know, that is one of the more fascinating stories that I've heard on the show about the entry point. And I think it fits so well into some of the narrative that I've been talking about recently on the show. We just had Angela Dalton on last, uh, last week and we were talking specifically about video games. And so Bitcoin obviously has been around for 10 years. We've seen the maturation of that. We're going to talk all about these things, but video games and gamers right now represent over 2 billion people on this planet. And rough shot, there's about 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet, over 2 billion people. Some speculate that 2.5 billion people play games on a regular basis. And to Bart's point, he hit it on the head. These worlds, these games all have in-game digital currencies in them. And you used a very specific word that I loved, conditioned. People have become conditioned to using these things. And I agree with that thesis. And I think a lot of people have not been paying attention to games and to gaming as it relates to the next adoption wave. We've been trying, all of us collectively, have been trying to educate people about a store of value, about you know, things that are happening on Ethereum about a new web. But it's these folks out there that play. It's just a natural fit for them, and they understand it. And so that was so, so interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about blockchain capital, and I want to talk about what you guys are doing there. So you have been around now at blockchain capital for about seven years, give or take. And I really love for you to opine, if you will, about how you have seen the overall ecosystem change more from a macro view. Um, I know that's a loaded question, uh, but more from a macro view, you know, it really seems to me that we are on the precipice of seeing a maturation, especially in the capital market side of digital assets. We're seeing the introduction of shorting and margin, other derivatives. We had DYDX on the show yesterday, uh, which will be coming out soon, talking about what they're doing in terms of using smart contracts and the ability to use derivatives and margin. So we're seeing this maturation of the industry in terms of capital markets. And we're also seeing firms like Fidelity, which have came out last year offering their qualified custodial platform. And so, you know, the first question, obviously, as I said, I'd love for you to opine about the way that the industry has changed over the last seven years since you guys have started blockchain capital. But then, you know, kind of working through your thoughts on that, I'd also like to see if you think that we are close to seeing family offices and other institutional investors get comfortable based on what the, the kind of the tooling that has come to the market that I kind of talked about. Those are great questions. Um, why don't I start a little bit about the genesis of blockchain capital, then I can go into how, kind of our view on how we've seen the industry mature and evolve over the last seven years. And I'm happy to talk uh, or touch on some of the topics around kind of capital markets activity when we talk about active participation in networks or staking or lending and borrowing and um, some of these kind of new twists on uh, financial services. 
Um, but when we got involved, um, you know, after we discovered Bitcoin, we spent about three months going around the world. Um, well, as I mentioned, and you highlighted in your comments, our mind was open and conditioned to this notion that people would pay real world dollars for virtual assets or digital items. We saw it in video games. We saw it in in-game currencies. And when what we saw with Bitcoin was something that was much more interesting to us. I mean, we started flying around the world and going to Bitcoin meetups and talking to cryptographers and PhDs in distributed systems. And I had a lot of uh, kind of fintech executives in my Rolodex from my days at E-Trade. And my brother uh, was a venture capitalist at Fidelity and did a lot with um, bioinformatics and internet security. He covered internet security stocks on Wall Street for several years. And, um, and so in some ways, um, you know, blockchains are a new data and security model. And so we had appropriate backgrounds in terms of fin some fintech, some internet security. We've been both venture capitalists and hedge fund managers. And our industry is kind of a mashup of a lot of those themes and topics. But in, in the early days, we were just trying to figure this stuff out. And, you know, so we were talking to uh, developers, we were talking to bankers, regulators, um, uh, as I mentioned, lawyers, uh, anyone we could think of, uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of people that were thinking about protocols. And uh, long story short, um, what really attracted us was um, the smartest people we knew were kind of look, reading the white paper and they were voting with their feet, you know, on their nights and their weekends, they might be working for Cisco or Salesforce, but they were like mining Bitcoin uh, at home in their garage and hardcore computer scientists, uh, cryptographers, uh, cypherpunks were drawn to this for the ethos and some of the ideals that Bitcoin stood for. And so what you want to see as an investor or an entrepreneur is that the best and brightest are not just voting with their pocketbook, but they're voting with their feet. They're quitting their day job. They're leaving Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, or they're leaving Google or Facebook or Salesforce to go start something because it, uh, it appeals to them at a real foundational level. All human beings want to be a part of something that is bigger than themselves, a mission, a statement. And I think in many ways, that's what we see with, in crypto. This is not just the rise of a new technology called blockchain technology. And it's not just the rise of a new asset class called crypto assets. And there's all different types of crypto assets. There's security tokens and utility tokens and, to and you know, crypto assets that are optimized for payments. Others that look like digital commodities to us, like, like Bitcoin, gold, kind of gold 2.0. But I would argue we're seeing the rise of something else. And it's the rise of a, a social movement. And it's a social movement that is generational. Young people at their core kind of know that the system is fucked and, and, and that Wall Street is rigged system that makes rich people richer. The Federal Reserve blows asset bubbles that really benefits wealthy people. And this I'm telling you from a, as a former hedge fund manager, I've been a beneficiary of this system. Um, and, and you can also see it in the streets of Hong Kong. I've visited Hong Kong twice in the last two months. And so young people, I think at a foundational level, they know that these centralized power authorities are kind of are managing a game that is rigged against them, whether it's Facebook selling your data to the Russians and the Chinese or the Federal Reserve blowing asset bubbles that bail out bankers. This is these all of these kind of systems have one thing in common, that is centralized power structures. And so uh, we're talking about really big ideas. And, and we saw that fervor. We saw that passion in a lot of the early believers in Bitcoin, and we still see it now. And so you know, the question is, how has the industry evolved and kind of why did we start blockchain capital? We started blockchain capital because there's no one investing full time. 
back in 2012 and 2013. We, we flew out to New York. We talked to Barry Silbert, who's a friend, and um, he, he was kind of just focused on Bitcoin. And we made our way to uh, Wences and, um, and, and his good friend and our friend, Mickey Malka, and he was just talking about Bitcoin. And as much as we love Bitcoin then and we love Bitcoin now and we own it in our funds at Blockchain Capital and I own it personally, um, to us, that was the tallest tree in the forest, if you will. Uh, we wanted to get along the whole forest. In 2013, when we started our firm, we thought that there would be multiple blockchain ecosystems in the future. We thought there would be multiple types of cryptocurrencies. We now prefer the term crypto assets. Thank you, Chris Berniski. <laughs> um, and so when we couldn't find a fund to invest in, um, you know, all the people, there were very few people that were talking about Bitcoin at all, and they weren't really talking about the underlying technology. And so, though we love Bitcoin, um, we just saw a wider world. And so we wanted to invest in all sorts of blockchain ecosystems. So, and we were thinking like a family office. We were ready to go be an LP in a venture fund, but we couldn't find a fund that saw the world the way we did, that saw Bitcoin at the beginning of the story, not the end of the story, that the underlying enabling technology of the blockchain could maybe be used for trading and settling other things besides Bitcoin, maybe other crypto assets, maybe stocks, bonds, currencies, or commodities. So anyway, when we couldn't find a fund to invest in, we started one. And we also saw it as there was some basic infrastructure that needed to be built. Um, when we started acquiring Bitcoins um, through various different ways, including mining, you know, there were no good uh, wallets at the time. Coinbase really hadn't yet launched. Um, paper wallets were difficult. Um, the UX and the UI experiences for users was, was pretty awful. Payment processors didn't really exist. And so part of our reason to um, start blockchain capital was there were no professional investors that were helping entrepreneurs get to that next level. And the industry still needed some basic, to use a civil engineering analogy, needed some bridges and roads and tunnels. And I would argue it still does. We need more on and off ramps from the world of fiat to the parallel universe of crypto. And so we said, if listen, if no one's out there writing checks to fund this stuff, We'll, we'll raise our hand and we'll do it. And, um, and there were some early investors there, but they were primarily focused on Bitcoin. And again, we just had kind of a, a broader, more expansive view of this industry. So, you know, that's why we started blockchain capital. Um, in the last seven years, we've raised and deployed for venture funds. We have 13 people here based in San Francisco. We've reviewed over 4,000 companies. We've made probably invested in 85 companies and or projects. And our mission is to help entrepreneurs kind of get to the next level and help midwife this industry into existence. Right. Um, your, your question on kind of where do we go going forward, and, and I didn't totally touch on um, kind of how the industry's evolved, but for us, it is really exciting. Um, the quality of entrepreneurs has improved dramatically. I mean, if you would have told me five years ago that Fidelity would be in the custody business, I would have been wildly excited and would have said that that was a fantasy land or that, you know, ICE would be backing um, a, a crypt, a futures exchange. And so we've come a long way as an industry. Sometimes I kind of have to pinch myself. Um, as you know, David, this industry is, is exhilarating and exhausting all at the same time. It, it, it's 24 hours a day. And, and I think uh, you know, a lot of the industry participants, there's a lot of backbiting and, and kind of sniping at each other on crypto Twitter, which I find unfortunate, you know, tribalism. But we've come a long way in the last five to seven years. And a lot of the things that looked obvious seven years ago really haven't happened. Right. You know, there was this vision of Bitcoin 
And people bring their own biases and wishes and hopes to Bitcoin. They kind of see what they want to see. And um, there was this kind of competing vision of Bitcoin. Is it gold 2.0 or is it PayPal 2.0? And many people seven years ago, six years ago, five years ago, thought that we'd be paying for coffee at the corner store with Bitcoin. And that really hasn't happened. You know, it's, it's evolved into more of a store of value, gold 2.0 story. And mm-hmm. the amicable divorce, divorce between Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash has allowed that to happen. And so um, uh, a lot of the things that kind of, I would say, look obvious haven't panned out. A lot of the things that we thought would happen by now have been a lot more challenging, primarily due to, I'd say, regulatory um, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you talk about you talked about DeFi and that you had maybe Antonio from DYDX yesterday and we're seeing staking and lending and all that stuff is exciting. Um, but that is once you already have crypto assets. I think there's a lot more work to be done on kind of spreading the world, spreading the word. You mentioned family offices. Um, you know, in the process of raising our four funds and, and we're in the early stages of raising our fifth fund, I've probably talked to more family offices in the last seven years than any other person on the planet. And I can tell you that um, there is strong intellectual interest mm-hmm. um, in blockchain technology in general and crypto assets in particular, but family offices are comprised of individuals and individuals are um, subject to fear of missing out FOMO and also um, have hangovers from overpaying for things. And so I would say that um, investor interest for better or for worse kind of tracks uh, crypto asset prices, namely the price of Bitcoin. And so we've been in a bear market for for two years, uh, I would argue. And we are kind of yet to emerge out of that with any sort of velocity. And so as exciting as we see a lot of the DeFi projects and we're investors in many of them, mm-hmm. those aren't kind of new entrants. Those are those are people that already have ETH and they want to lock it up or lever it in the case of UIDX or, or short or, you know, earn some um, a yield in a yield starved wor- world. And those are those are needed financial services. But I'm much more interested in kind of expanding um, the number of users. And so part of my job, and we all have a, a role to play in the world of crypto. Part of my job with kind of a Wall Street background is to spread the good word to uh, foundations and family offices and high net worth individuals and pension funds and and try to demystify this technology, right. try to make it accessible. Um, and so I spend a lot of my time giving talks around the world um, doing just that. You know, I'll, I'm going to go to toe-to-toe with you. I think I've been doing my fair share of evangelizing blockchains and crypto to family offices, too, over the last few years as I came from that background. But I know you have been out there battling the good fight. And it's I, I use the terminology soldier. We are out there. You know, I had a breakfast with a family office investor this morning alone, and I, I kind of invoked on Ronald Reagan ism where I said, tear down that wall. You know, they have these walls of suspicion and rightly so, as any family office investor knows, you initially get a deal sent to you from another family office or for somebody else. And immediately you have a paranoia. You have a little bit of a bias. You know, what is wrong with this? You know, where are the issues here? Why am I so lucky air quotes to receive this deal? And so I, I agree with you. It's, it is a very long process to educate, to motivate, to get them interested, to see that there is this potentiality that you and others obviously have have seen, you know, for the last few years. And so I love that. And it's a great story. So what I'd like to dig into a little bit here is how the, the kind of the idea generation that you guys have at Blockchain Capital emerged 
you know, you, you touched on this briefly where you had ex-engineers uh, that might have come from Cisco or from Google that started getting into the space a few years ago. But, you know, I'd like to see, are you starting to see a change? We see Kleiner and Sequoia and some of the bigger Andreessen's out there that use Y Combinator and some of the other bigger accelerators almost as a feeder. Are you starting to see that maturation where you're starting to see those accelerators start to pop up in blockchain that are starting to feed funds like yours? Or are you still seeing it still kind of disparate? So there's a, let me unpack that. Um, I think there's a, a couple of astute observations in there. And David, by the way, I've listened to your podcast in the past. You do an excellent job. So um, as someone with a f- uh, family office background, I'm well aware that you um, do your part in spreading the good word about this new technology industry and a new asset class. So hats off to you and thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast today. Thank you. Um, you know, I have strong feelings that make me no friends in Silicon Valley about um, accelerators and uh, generalist, what I call legacy venture capital firms. Um, so um, I'll put Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures in a different bucket. Um, KD Hahn and Chris Dixon are good friends of mine. Mark Andreessen is an LP in our funds. Um, they have a deep and well-respected crypto practice. And I put USV, um, even though they've had a lot of uh, personnel turnover there, um, I'll put them in, the, in that same bucket. So that is a, those are generalist firms where they do technology investing, you know, enterprise services, mobile devices, what have you, in the case of um, Andreessen Horowitz, biotech and a bunch of other stuff, but they have a dedicated crypto team, they have a long tenure, they have a deep, uh, nuanced understanding of the industry. So those are in that, I put those two firms in a separate bucket. But if you look at the other more generalist, traditional Sandhill Road firms that are considered top tier firms, Founders Fund, NEA, Axel, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, Mayfield, et cetera, um, they haven't made big commitments to the crypto industry. You know, my brother and I, when we were starting blockchain capital, we went down to one of the firms I just mentioned, and I won't tell you who, and um, we basically had kind of a teach-in with the general partners of this storied firm that is over 40 years old. And we were talking about digital scarcity. We were talking about Bitcoin as a store of value. We were talking about instantaneous exchange um, between one person and another without an intermediary. We were talking about ideas of self-sovereign control of important information like your financial data, your, your, uh, your health data, and how this could grow to be the largest distributed and decentralized database in the world. And, you know, long story short, they basically threw us out of their conference room and said, oh, we have no idea what you guys are talking about. You, had, you were running this billion dollar technology hedge fund. You were well-respected technology investors, and we're kind of worried about your career decisions. And, um, and so, you know, that told us that we were pretty early and we needed to refine our pitch in terms of how to describe this industry. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of the generalist firms make a lot of headway. Um, they tend to be interested in crypto when the prices are up, and then they walk off the playing field when the price of crypto drops. And so I've come to the belief, and this is an unpopular opinion, that crypto is an industry that demands specialization, that I really think that it's almost like biotech. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're gonna invest in cancer biotherapeutics, you do not wanna go give a billion dollars to two art history majors from Vassar. They don't have the proper educational background and understanding of molecular biology or genomics or bioinformatics or whatever the kind of subsector might be. Mm-hmm. And I think crypto is an industry that moves so quickly. It is global. It is difficult to understand. It is essentially a new technology stack Um, there's a social movement wrapped around it. There's a constantly changing regulatory environment. 
All of these things make it incredibly tricky. You know, we have 13 people at Blockchain Capital, nine investment professionals that have been doing this for years, and we have a hard time keeping up. Right. And so when I look at a general partnership at a Sandhill Road firm that's kind of been around for 30 or 40 years, and sometimes they call us up and they'll show us a deal or they'll ask us our opinion, and it's usually the fintech guy. And sadly, the venture capital industry has a gender uh, equity problem. It is almost always a guy. Mm -hmm. And this guy does fintech and maybe he spends 30% of his time on crypto or blockchain. And so you know, I'm talking to this guy and you know, he's basically one dude spending a third of his time on something where we have nine full-time investment professionals right. and they almost never understand what they're talking about. And so I actually have come to this belief that um, if entrepreneurs are seeking capital to help them grow their business that is nuanced and understands the ways to go wrong in this industry, which are legion, um, and really want to kind of level up, so to speak, to use a video game analogy from an earlier conversation, um, you want to work with a firm that does this full time. And I actually think that the venture capital model is far preferable to the crypto hedge fund model. No disrespect to my friends that run crypto hedge funds, but I am a former hedge fund manager. I did it for 10 years. And what you learn as a hedge fund manager is your business is only as strong as your weakest LP. Mm -hmm. Because... LPs tend to give you money at the top of the market and they take it away at the bottom. Yep. And so when I'm sitting in front of an entrepreneur, I can look them in the eyes and say, hey, bro, I will be there with you in five years. You know, when you're looking to do your Series C, I know all the people I can introduce you to. Mm -hmm. Our capital is locked up for 10 years. That means the money I give you is good for 10 years. That's right. And a, a crypto hedge fund really can't make that, um, that, that commitment. And so we've come to the belief of the venture model, I think, for entrepreneurs looking to evaluate who is their best investment partner, that venture capital is kind of preferred money over hedge fund money, mm -hmm. and that you want to take money from dedicated blockchain and crypto investors rather than a kind of traditional generalist investor. And so, you know, we're seeing that actually we're natural partners with a lot of these firms. Oftentimes they'll show us a deal that we're aware of or we passed on the seed round and they're looking at the A round and, and they'll say something like, hey, Bart, you know, if you guys lead this deal, we want to put in two to three million bucks, but we're not comfortable leading it ourselves. <laughs> so I thought that we would end up competing with the Kleiner Perkins of the world, but actually they've turned into more natural kind of um, – um, it's kind of co-opetition, if you will. So we, we work very closely with some of these general generalist firms. And, and to your point on the accelerators, we do um, invest in some of the accelerators. Um, uh, so one of our companies, TRM, that has kind of a compliance solution that is uh, industry leading, in my opinion, was a Y Combinator uh, grad. And, and we've looked at, um, we go to all these demo days. I think the days of accelerators kind of peaked a couple years ago um, would be my assessment there though. Okay. And so moving more into the intrinsic of the kind of the day to day, obviously a robust team that you guys have developed there. One of the issues I've seen is it relates to valuation. We've seen that on the equity side and the traditional equity side. Um, I have said this time and time again, there was a point in time 
where Square was about to go public. They had their valuation slashed a few days before that. I thought that the rain was going to come, that valuations on traditional tech were going to come down. But alas, all of the capital that has been on the sidelines continued to cram into the market, and we saw valuations continue on. And then what we started to see is that with the SoftBank Vision Funds, that they started to overload the market and completely distort the later stage. And we saw that, you know, we've seen some issues with WeWork and, and some of the other things that happened with Jewel and Postmates uh, last year, late last year, where they either decided to pull back from an IPO and had some structural issues. So I'd love to get your opinion on the state of valuation as relates to crypto assets in terms of blockchain companies you know we've we've tried to as a ecosystem tried to play with different models especially with bitcoin there's a whole debate about stock to flow as it relates to ethereum and some of the network ones we've talked about metcalf what are you guys thinking about the state of valuation you know in my opinion it's a moving target and do you guys agree with that or are you guys have you guys come up with some things unique over there that you think uh, could be industry standards so these are great questions, and, and they're worth talking about, I think, within the technology industry in general and uh, within the crypto industry in particular. The first I, thing I would note is that um, one of the things that is most attractive to me and I think to institutional limited partners is the lack of correlation or the essentially non-correlation or inverse correlation of crypto assets to, let's say, the NASDAQ or the S&P 500. Um, so let's talk some specifics. In 2017, we saw one of the greatest bull markets slash bubbles, maybe in the history of financial markets. When you look at crypto assets, the price of Bitcoin went from 3000 to 20000 um, And then in 2018, it had an 85% drawdown. And so that was a massive bubble, a really, really painful market correction. Um, and the NASDAQ really didn't notice. And so it was just kind of steadily marching up into the right. And so in some ways, uh, within the world of crypto, we are a little bit insulated um, from the kind of overall fund flows, market psychology, dy uh, valuation dynamics that affect the overall tech industry. And by that, I mean publicly traded uh, multiples and comp groups, but also private companies. Now, I do think we see a little bit of a bleed. And by that, I mean, when valuations are robust um, in the late stage part of the tech market, I think that does bleed over to kind of equity valuations um, in crypto. Um, but maybe that's for the equity in companies, maybe like, like Coinbase or Ripple or Circle or Binance. Some of the bigger, more later stage companies can command a higher valuations. But I would point out that if you look at some of the companies that are considered, um, you know, later stage unicorn type companies in um, crypto, they have a very different margin profile. You know, if you look at um, the finances of Coinbase or Kraken, where we're investors, and I can't disclose the numbers, but these companies, these business models, especially in, in bull markets, are wildly profitable. Mm. Like. Some of the more attractive business models I've seen in my 20 years as a public and a private market investor. So these are companies that are growing in the case of uh, Coinbase grew like 10,000% or something like that year over year. If you look at kind of going into the bull market um, profitably, really profitably, that is very different profile than we work mm -hmm. um, or Postmates. And so, you know, what, what investors pay large multiples for where they will 
Command a high valuation is number one growth, but growth and profitability is really the sweet spot. And that's what WeWork missed. That's what Postmates missed. That's what um, uh, Lyft and others have missed. And so I actually think that um, some of the worst sins that venture capitalists have committed in the general tech industry have not been committed in our industry. Um, where I think we did see some, let's call it sins of valuation, was what I'll say in kind of next generation smart contract platforms. Mm -hmm. So after the huge bull run in 2017, we saw the launch of about 200 crypto hedge funds. And I don't want to speak pejoratively about crypto hedge funds as a group, but you can make some generalizations. Um, for the most part, these were first time hedge fund managers. For the, most time, for the most part, these were managers in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And so I would argue if you give a first-time hedge fund manager $100 million that's 27 years old in the world's most volatile asset class at the top of a market, um, tears will be shed eventually. <laughs> and so in, indeed, what we saw is we saw, because the price of ETH went up like 35 or 37X, People did pattern recognition, and a lot of these first-time crypto hedge fund managers said, okay, I need to find the next ETH 2.0. And so what we saw in late 2017 and early 2018 is a lot of projects that were essentially seed stage projects started commanding multi-billion dollar valuations, and I'm talking about the implied crypto network valuations. Right. So whether it was Algorand or Hashgraph or Polkadot or Cosmos or... Um, Telegram or, you know, you can go on and on, but there was a whole definity, um, you know, the list is long and what they all had in common were basically seed stage projects, something that looked like an ETH 2.0 or a quote unquote ETH killer that were commanding multi-billion dollar valuations. And so I actually think the worst sins that investors committed were not in the equity valuations, but rather paying multi-billion dollar valuations for seed stage projects at the height of a market. And indeed, right. when you look at what's happened with the Algorands and Hashgraphs of the world, once these tokens got unlocked, if there's not enough organic demand um, for the utilization, not the specula speculation, um, there's just no, not enough buyers. And these, these crypto funds um, are down 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%. Um, and so there are four sellers. And so that's why we've seen an incredible destruction of value in a lot of the secondary market trading in a lot of these things. You know, to your point on kind of crypto modeling and, and valuation work, we read all of the work. We have some proprietary models. Our firm is a little different. Um, we don't tweet out everything that we discover. So there's a lot of investors in crypto that they kind of come up with something and they just want to look cool to their friends and their peers or their limited partners. And so they, they kind of blast it out to the world. And um, even though we operate in an open source kind of software environment when you when you look at crypto networks and open source protocols. I love that environment. I think it's very robust and intellectually stimulating. I'm a little bit more old school and maybe Wall Street trained in that if we find something that we think the world hasn't yet discovered, we tend to keep it to ourselves at least for a bit of time. Yeah, and so we do have awesome. some proprietary models. I respect the work of others and, and sometimes that influences us, um, but uh, it's not something we generally talk about in public. I, it's the secret sauce. I completely get it. You know, it, it's, it makes, it makes sense. And, um, 
I, I love that. You know, if you have a model and you tweet it out, because there's so much of that going on these days. Um, and you know, I, I had started. This was months back. I had started this thing called Signal to Noise, where I was trying to decipher what was actual signal in the market and what was noise. And I agree with you. A lot of that was noise. But let's get into some of the last questions here before we get uh, wrapped up. You, you mentioned Kraken, and you also, um, Blockchain Capital came out with 2020 predictions, and I think some of them are great to highlight here. And so you guys discussed that in 2020, a crypto company will be acquired for $500 million. And so you mentioned Kraken. Kraken, at the end of last year, became fairly acquisitive. Um, and so I'm curious... You know, what is this? Does this look like consolidation to you in 2020? Um, and um, what do we see going forward? Yeah, this is a great question, David. I'm glad you asked it. It's one that is near and dear to um, both the hearts of entrepreneurs and also investors. Um, you know, there's a plenty of crypto cheerleaders out there in our industry. And I think it's important to um, take kind of a sober and clear eyed look at both the strengths and the weaknesses of our industry. One of the weaknesses I would argue is there hasn't been a lot of um, exits or exits that generate a tremendous amount of value for the founders, the employees and the investors. Um, and, 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 you know, you might ask, well, why should we care about whether venture capitalists have exits? And and we should all care. Yeah, the reason is um, most startups start out unprofitably. They need to hire engineers. They need to pay for equipment. They need to um, hire a bunch of people. And it is venture capital that bridges that gap, that allows a company to fund its operations for two, three, four, five, sometimes 10 years um, to grow uh, and to build products and services that the world needs. Um, venture capitalists themselves have clients. Um, they're usually institutions or family offices. So sometimes founders think that venture capital is just money kind of grows on trees. It's not true. We have we go make a bunch of promises to other institutional investors, and part of those promises includes we're going to give you your money back in a reasonable time frame, hopefully with a great return on that money. Right. That's better than say the return you get in the stock market. Right. And so the way that we get our money, venture capital funds gets their money back to limited partners is exits, and that's traditionally done through mergers and acquisitions and IPOs. Uh, in crypto, we have a third avenue, obviously, with uh, maybe equity turns into tokens or you are investor in a safe note or a SAFT or SAFTI that turns into tokens and you can sell those tokens on the secondary market. But if there are not exits, um, the trickle down effect is there's less capital that gets allocated to funds like yours or funds like mine. And that means ultimately there's less capital for the two engineers that are dropping out of Berkeley that want to start a new protocol. And so I do think exits are something that is kind of a, a needed uh, aspect that our industry hasn't uh, yet experienced. I have a reason to believe that that will change. And so you mentioned Kraken. I think Coinbase has also been very acquisitive. So we've had now two or three companies be acquired by Kraken. We've had a couple companies be acquired by Coinbase, but those are kind of, let's call it intra crypto acquisitions. That's a big company buying a little company. Um, and, you know, a little a tip for your listeners out there, when you see an acquisition and there is not a purchase price announced, um, that usually means it's a bad return on, uh, on the investment for the founders, mm -hmm. uh, for the employees and for the outside investors. And so when you, when you hear things like aqua hires, I kind of cringe when I hear aqua hires. That usually means the engineers get jobs and the, and the investors in the company lose all their money. Right. And so what we haven't seen yet is a company from outside of the blockchain technology ecosystem 
buy one from the inside. Mm -hmm. So what we haven't seen is say Visa buy BitPay or, you know, Charles Schwab by Kraken or something like that. Uh, Those are uh, mergers or or acquisitions that could happen. And the reason why I think they'll happen is um, we have extensive polling data that we did from Harrison Company here at Blockchain Capital. And you can find it on our website. And I'll boil it down to you for the sake of brevity, which is crypto assets are a generational asset. These are they're primarily, you know, Bitcoin holders. If you look at who holds Bitcoin, it is technologically savvy people in the East, uh, namely China, Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, and, and basically the U.S. And they're primarily male. They're primarily wealthy. They're primarily technologically savvy, but they're young. They're people essentially that are millennials defined as age, you know, 18 to 35 year olds. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a millennial asset class. And so if you're a business like Charles Schwab and you want to access millennials, you need to give them what they want. And what they want is crypto assets. And so I and the other thing that I think is going to spur mergers and acquisitions um, by crypto related companies from from companies that are let's call it financial incumbents is that there's a real culture difference um, within crypto and within, say, a bank or a insurance company. Um, If you are State Street, you know, State Street and Bank of New York Mellon have had blockchain task forces for going on five years. And what happens over and over again, and this happens at JP Morgan and other large risk averse institutions is they go hire a bunch of engineers and they want to have some, you know, internal crypto or blockchain project and the engineers go build something and then nothing launches because the lawyers get involved or the compliance department. And so these talented young engineers, they quit and they go start their own company. And then these large banks or insurance companies go hire a new bunch of new engineers. And those guys quit too. Um, Because if you look at the culture of crypto, it is fundamentally incompatible with kind of large technology monopolies or large financial incumbents. And so I think that financial incumbents uh, and even large technology companies, if they want to go buy crypto related products or services or companies, they're going to have to buy them. They kind of can't home grow them because their culture is so different. And it's probably outside the scope of this conversation. Uh, the corollary to that would be, well, if Schwab buys Kraken, let's say, how do you keep those employees? That's a whole different uh, challenge. But I, so I think it is, I think crypto has already achieved escape velocity. It is now a generational asset class. So if you want millennials, and Gen Z, you probably need to offer crypto or have that on the menu. And it, you probably, unlike Fidelity, that has proved like they, they can build it. Um, I think most institutions are going to have to buy it. So that's why we're pretty constructive on M&A opportunities um, for uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists uh, in 2020. And I'm going to let everyone know, we'll put some liners in, in, uh, in the notes, the show notes, but Blockchain Capital did come up with a bunch of 2020 predictions, and I highly recommend you guys taking a look at them for the purposes of sparing time. You know, Bart obviously is very busy uh, managing things there, so we're going to kind of cut it a little short. We wanted to also talk a little bit, just getting to know you, um, someone obviously formidable as an investor. Um, there are a few things that we usually like to find out from our guests in terms 
terms of some of the things that might be considered personality traits. And one of them is, what are you reading? So are you reading anything recently that really resonated with you that you told your friends and family about? It could be crypto or non-crypto related, of course. Um, and then any music that you listen to. And I find that always very interesting to hear what people are listening to while they're traveling or working. Uh, I think it tells a lot about a person's personality. So anything that you've read recently or any music that you listen to? Yes, I just finished Neil Stevenson's book, The Fall. So I'm a huge Neil Stevenson fan. His seminal science fiction book, uh, Snow Crash, kind of changed my life that I read in college, basically predicting the internet as we know it now. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fall is kind of a mashup. It actually has blockchain technology and crypto networks in it in the early stages of the book. It kind of also involves video games and the singularity. Um, it is 880 pages, so it is a um, tome of a book. Um, but Neil Stevenson is, I think, one of the best predictors of the future out there. I highly recommend the work to any of your readers. Um, and it actually does have crypto involved. Nice. Um, in terms of music, I am more of a classic rock guy. So music um, I generally listen to while commuting. Um, I take the ferry to and from work here in um, San Francisco or when I'm exercising. And so classic rock uh, does it for me. Um, and so, you know, as you know, uh, crypto is a, a consuming industry. So I try to make time for non-crypto activities um, and exercise and being out in nature is kind of the way I recharge my batteries. Reading um, things that are non-crypto related uh, also helps yes. and, and exercise is a, is a great um, tonic for me as well. Awesome. Um, and so anyone that wants to find out more about the work that you guys are doing at Blockchain Capital, we always let folks uh, give a little shout out any places they can find out more or if they can reach out to you, uh, feel free to let them know. Yeah, so our website is blockchaincapital.com. We have a recommended reading list there. We have a bunch of resources for people that are crypto vets and also people that are new to the industry. If you want to follow us on Twitter, our corporate Twitter is at blockchaincap. Um, if you want to follow me personally, I'm at PBART Stevens. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity to discuss some of these topics today, David, and um, look forward to um, maybe touching base at a later date. Sounds great. Again, this was Bart Stevens, the co-founder and managing partner at Blockchain Capital. I probably could have had this conversation go on for three or four hours and maybe one day we'll sit by the bay in San Fran and do that and we'll have some fun. But everyone, please reach out to Bart and to the blockchain team. They've been around for a long time. They've seen a lot of things and this was a great conversation. So thanks again, Bart, and we'll be catching you soon. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.